Drawing and Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm E. Jackson. We are cartoonists, scholars, and educators. On Drawing and Dialogue, we put comics into historical and educational contexts. My segment explores theoretical and historical analyses of our topic. And I talk about our topic through the lens of pedagogy and education with a focus on practical application. I work with K-12 students in schools and additional alternative educational settings. My next graphic novel, The Breakaways, is coming out from 1st 2nd in March, and you can pre-order it at thebreakawayscomic.com. I have a master's degree in art education. I just pre-ordered that book yesterday. Um, really? Thank you! Was it from your local bookstore? Yeah, well, I used IndieBound. Yes, there's an IndieBound link at thebreakawayscomic.com. Yeah, but when you pre-order it, it doesn't actually, it goes, it, they just ship it to you from like their partner. Oh, cool. So I am a PhD student in the University of Florida's English program. Um, my research focuses on comic studies and museum studies, um, and I am also a self-published cartoonist. Awesome. I self-publish stuff too. I feel like I say that every time. Yeah. Today's episode of Drawing a Dialogue is on the topic of masculinity. Yeah, um, Kathy came to me with this topic and I wanted to go with it because I'm working on a project about uh, masculinities right now and I know Kathy is also working on a project about masculinity right now, mm -hmm. so it's uh, something that we're both already working towards, like researching, and it is sort of helpful to be able to stack our research and like think through things uh through this podcast collaboratively yeah it is yeah it, and it's it's nice to have research driven um by a project you know by by something yeah. having yeah. a goal yeah. for your research makes it um easier and also more uh succinct something i try to impress upon my students all the time <laughs> <laughs> um so shall we get into it into it i sort of want to start with definitions yeah okay so yeah so i actually i think that what i was going to open my segment with contains sort of the sort of definition that i'm working with in it anyway cool. to give like sort of an overview what i'm going to be doing is using a specific sociologist, uh, Raywin Connell, and her concepts of masculinity and how it's like changed over the last thirty years. Um, her her book on masculinities came out in nineteen ninety five, and since then, she has revisited her own concepts and updated them. Cool every so often and then other people have also responded so like it sort of is like a a helpful through line through um thinking through masculinity in like a more academic-y cool. way um so i'm gonna start with um the introduction to an anthology that was published in 2016 exploring masculinities identity inequality continuity and change edited by cj pasco and tristan bridges one of my main sources is also by cj pasco so yeah yeah uh pasco and bridges have written a lot on this topic and i'm kind of a fan of their writing but so they in their introduction to this they lay out sort of the history of what masculinity studies is and also what masculinity is so um to quote from them Man refers to a state of being. Masculinity refers to much more. Identity, performance, power, privilege, relation, style, and structure. But once we try to articulate exactly what makes a man, we find that it is often much more difficult than we might have anticipated. Most of us casually use a soft know-it-when-I-see-it approach or think of masculinity as a series of knots, e.g., 
not feminine, not, quote, gay, not interested in interior design, cooking, or clothing. So what they're already articulating is that masculinity is not synonymous with man, mm-hmm. right? Um, which often they are used interchangeably, right? Mm-hmm. Masculinity is associated with maleness. Like, that's what the relationship is in our society, like, the way we think of that. Um, but what they're trying to posit is that man is like a state of being it's like a person like what you are right Mm -hmm. um whereas masculinity is more of a series of performance things identity things privilege things relations and i'm going to get more into that word relations Mm -hmm. um but it's hard to articulate a definition that encompasses the all of it right like that's where it gets tricky is like trying to pin down exactly what masculinity means and like what it is Mm -hmm. so they go on to say um whereas we often easily recognize women's lives as gendered masculinity is less easy to recognize and often seems invisible men's lives however are just as organized by gender as are women's so why is it important to recognize men as gendered because gender is one of the major ways through which power structures privilege and inequality are reproduced in addition to and in combination with race and class. Therefore, it is important to see men as gendered because masculinity replicates power and affords power to those with identity. Mm. It is important to investigate masculinity to understand the ways in which politics, the state, institutions of school and work, religion, family, and nationality are infused with and themselves shape masculinity. Um, What they're calling attention to is our tendency to not look at the ways in which men's lives are gendered yeah right like a lot of scholarship a lot of research a lot of people in general talk a lot about women's lives being gendered and the way women's work is gendered and the way women's experiences are gendered but there's not as much focus at critically looking at the way men experience gendering of their life right that's sort of just treated as like the default yeah (laughs) so a genderless And I think it also is helpful because it's like to recognize that there is gender in sort of the dominant. It doesn't necessarily Mm -hmm. mean that they are also like somehow oppressed by that categorization. It's more like being able to recognize that every action is gendered mm-hmm. is a, like a way to sort of create equity, <laughs> right? Yeah, and it's also a way of starting to look at how those relationships function in order to produce this power. Because mm-hmm. one of the things I'm going to get into is that uh, this writing on masculinities isn't necessarily just looking at people and like patterns of behavior among people. It's also looking at like, how are the ways in which the institution of the state is gendered? Mm-hmm. So like how are like these dominant power structures being gendered as male cool. or masculine? Mm-hmm. So what Pasco and Bridges argue for in this anthology is um, a recognition of multiple masculinities. So there's not just one masculinity. Mm-hmm. There are queer masculinities. There are racialized masculinities. There are class masculinities and so forth. And even within that, it's not just like, here's the gay masculinity. It's like there are multiple gay masculinities. Mm-hmm. So starting to like not just look at the relationship 
between masculinity and femininity, but also within masculinity, what those relationships are. And so to sort of explore this, um, this is where I'm going to be using Raywin Connell. She's a sociologist and her work is sort of critical to the masculinity studies. And masculinity studies is an interesting field because it comes out of feminist writings. Um, so like masculinities, I think... I know like when I first was like looking at this stuff and I was like, oh, masculinity studies, it like I was at first I didn't know how to like parse that idea. Mm. But like it comes from it's always been fairly like sympathetic to feminism because it sort of comes from feminists cool. who are trying to work through the way that like men's lives are also gendered and affected by gender. Cool. I'm going to start with uh, Connell's book masculinities which was published originally in 1995 masculinities is an expansion of a 1987 article that connell wrote with two other people for an australian journal where they first kind of put forward the phrase hegemonic masculinity right okay um and also ray if you decide to look these up um raywin connell a lot of her earlier work is published under rw connell okay Good to know. So Connell puts forth a theory of what she calls gender relations, which differs from the theory that was really popular before then, which was sex roles theory. So sex roles theory is basically what it sounds like, right? That there is like distinct intrinsic roles that each of the sexes play and they are separate but equal. And sexual theory tried to get around the idea that things were biological, but like mm -hmm. ended up falling back on it because there's no way to be like, here's a black and white binary without accidentally essentializing down to biological differences. Okay. So Connell's proposal is that masculinity and femininity only exist in relation to each other and themselves. So they are not um platonic ideals they are not things that exist without each other like how they relate to each other okay so to quote it is gender relations that constitute a, co a coherent object of knowledge for science masculinities are configurations of practice structured by gender relations they are inherently historical and their making and remaking is a political process affecting the balance of interest in society and the direction of social change so Connell envisions gender as a social practice rather than a biological imperative. She says, if we spoke only of differences between men as a block and women as a block, we would not need the terms masculine and feminine at all. Mm -hmm. We would just speak of men's and women's or male and female. The terms masculine and feminine point beyond categorical sex difference to the ways men differ amongst themselves and the ways women differ amongst themselves in matters of gender. Right. Okay. So like. The, her analysis of gender and of masculinity and femininity is that they are like social processes and they work through the ways that they relate to each other and like within each other. So both inter and intra relations. It sounds like there's also room for non-binary identities in this. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Connell is a trans woman and like it's pretty clear that her understanding of gender is like very informed by like an understanding of trans people this is also trans inclusive in these definitions because if your yeah. definitions are not male female they are masculinities and femininities within gender relations that's very yeah. much trans inclusive um so connell is really critical of what she calls normative definitions of masculinity e.g masculinity is what a man ought to be Mm -hmm. She actually writes, and I love this quote, what is normative about a norm hardly anyone meets? 
<laughs> and her argument is that this sort of like normative definition is what causes a drift towards essentialism. It's almost like it's um, um, aspirational, though. Like like my segment, especially when you're talking about in adolescence. So I'm going to mostly be talking about teenagers and preteens. Yeah creating gender and it's, yeah, yeah. it's definitely fully aspirational <laughs> yeah yeah definitely um but she's also critical of the other at this point definitions of masculinity um which are semiotic definitions which quote abandon the level of personality and define masculinity through a system of symbolic difference e.g masculine is not feminine and vice versa mm -hmm. so like we've talked about semiotic when we talked about like lacan and the gaze that's where this comes from the idea of like phallus and then lack of phallus mm -hmm. <laughs> and um using these sort of like signifiers to talk about masculinity and femininity but she calls this, quote, effective but limited in scope because it doesn't actually address gendered places in production and consumption, places in institution and natural environments, places in social and military structure. It's really interesting to think about her dismissal of the semiotic when so much of comic books within the actually the actual drawing of comics, not the act of drawing, but in the actual final product, the semiotic masculinity is huge yeah but the actual production because me and e had chatted about this last night but the actual yeah. production of comics by the cartoonists and the publishers and the distribution in our culture can be gendered <laughs> beyond the semiotics of it yeah and that's like what she wants to move yes i love it is thinking about like yeah thinking about like how production is gendered and how con capitalism is itself gendered and things like that it's like very good i love it i love it <laughs> yeah so again she's moving us towards this idea of masculinity as a series of social relations um which she calls the principle of connection that quote no masculinity rises except in a system of gender relations mm. um so to continue to quote in gender processes the everyday conduct of life is organized in relation to a reproductive arena defined by the bodily structures and the processes of human reproduction. Um, and she actually qualifies this and she says she's intentionally using the phrase reproductive arena to indicate that, quote, we are talking about a historical process involving the body, not a fixed set of biological determinants. So she's very insistent on, like, not reducing this down to just bodies, okay. but instead, like, the power relations that form around ideas of what bodies are supposed to do. Definitely. So, yeah, she even says gender is a social practice that constantly refers to bodies and what bodies do. It is not a social practice reduced to the body. Okay. So I'm going to now to get into like sort of the meat of what her main theory is, which is sort of what people have um, continued to work with in this field. Mm -hmm. She proposes, quote, an at least threefold model of the structure of gender, distinguishing between relations of A, power, B, production, and C, what she calls cathexis, um, which is emotional attachment. And I like the way she qualifies everything where she's never like, this is it. She's like, at least this many. There might be more. This is probably limited, but at least this. So power, production, and emotional attachment cathexis. Cool. So the main axis of power in the contemporary European slash American gender order is the overall subordination of women and dominance of men. Mm -hmm. The structure women's liberation named patriarchy. 
And this order, this access of power, continues to persist despite attempts at resistance and reversal. Production relations is gender divisions of labor, quote, sometimes reaching extraordinarily fine detail. (laughs) In the English village studied by the sociologist Pauline Hunt, for example, it was customary for women to wash the insides of windows and men to wash the outside. (laughs) Um, so she, so gender divisions of labor, which are fairly, I think, well known, but also economic consequences of divisions of labor. So unequal, uh, wage rates, right? Mm -hmm. So women get paid less than men, generally speaking, and also quote, gendered character of capital, a capitalist economy working through a gender division of labor is necessarily a gendered accumulation process, implausible as it sounds, The accumulation of wealth has been firmly linked to the reproductive arena through the social relations of gender. And her footnote for that, which I'm not I don't have time to go into it, but I do want to note that her footnote for that is a 1980 book by Pauline Hunt, um, Gender and Clash Consciousness. So if that's like an idea that you're interested in exploring further. Cool. And then cathexis, emotional relations, she writes... Sexual desire is so often seen as natural that it is commonly excluded from social theory. Yet when we consider desire in Freudian terms as emotional energy being attached to an object, its gendered character is clear. In feminist analysis of sexuality, these have become sharp questions about the connection of heterosexuality with men's position of social dominance. So this is 95. She's pulling on sort of feminist use of Freud and like feminist analysis of heterosexuality um, and like the sexual relationships between men and women and how men benefit from that. Mm -hmm. So those are her three accesses, sort of the threefold model, right? And then she goes on to qualify that and says, um, like as an example, right? Um, White men's masculinities, for instance, are constructed not only in relation to white women, but also in relation to black men. Right. White fears of black men's violence have a long history in colonial and post-colonial situations. Black fears of white men's terrorism, founded in the history of colonialism, have a continuing basis in white men's control of police, courts, and prisons in metropolitan countries. Similarly... It is impossible to understand the shaping of working class masculinities without giving full weight of their class as well as gender politics. To understand gender, then, we must constantly go beyond gender. The same applies in reverse. We cannot understand class, race, or global inequality without constantly moving towards gender. Um, So again, sort of setting up among these like three different axes of uh, power relationships, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And now this is where she goes a step further to talk about the relationships within masculinity. So like power, cathexis, production, that's masculinity in relationship to race, to femininity, to class, right? To other things. Can you spell cathexis for me? Yes, that is C-A-T-H-E-X-I-S. Ooh, cathexis. Okay, thank you. Yeah. So now she moves us to talk about the relationships within masculinities. She identifies this in four categories. Well, she basically, and again, so this is kind of going back to this idea of like, there's not just a black masculinity, not just a single working class masculinity. The masculinities exist within relations to each other. Mm -hmm. So quote, recognizing multiple masculinities, especially in an individualistic culture such as the United States, risks taking them for alternative lifestyles, a matter of consumer choices. 
A relational approach makes it easier to recognize the hard compulsions under which gender configurations are formed, the bitterness as well as the pleasure and gendered experience. Because she's really interested in moving beyond, again, obviously, she's talking about relations, so less like not the idea of a gay masculinity as in like gay men love to dress a certain way, but like mm-hmm. what is gay masculinity in relation to straight masculinity? Okay. So hegemonic masculinity is the core idea that sort of gets taken. Hegemonic masculinity is uh, quite present in my sources. So Yeah, it pops up. Anything you read about masculinity or even like femininity, you're going to run into sort of a bunch of the comic sources I have talk about mm-hmm. it, right? So she says... Uh, It can be defined as the configuration of gender practice, which embodies the currently accepted answer to the program of the legitimacy of patriarchy, which guarantees or is taken to guarantee the dominant position of men and the subordination of women. Um, So it's not always the most visible bearers are the most powerful individual holders of institutional power or great wealth may be far from the hegemonic pattern in the personal lives. So hegemonic masculinity is not about a particular set of traits. It's a gender practice that upholds the patriarchy, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, despite this, she does argue that the hegemony is likely to be established only if there is some correspondence between the cultural ideal and institutional power, collective if not individual. So the top levels of business, the military and government provide a fairly convincing corporate display of masculinity still very little shaken by feminist women or dissenting men. It is the successful claim to authority more than direct violence that is the mark of hegemony, though violence often underpins or supports authority. So there can be a female CEO, but it's still like this practice of hegemonic masculinity, right? Like that's not shaken by that. It just shifts to accept it. Mm -hmm. And she stresses that this is a currently accepted practice. So it can change as, quote, new groups may challenge old solutions and construct a new hegemony. It's a, quote, historically mobile relation. So think about, like, what dominant masculinities in the 1950s look like versus dominant masculinities in 2019. Um, They probably look very different, but the end game of subordination of women is still there. Yes. The traits that just define, like, what's acceptable have changed. Right. Would you say it's not just the subordination of women, but all subordination of anyone who is not a man? I mean, yeah. Okay. So the other forms that she identifies are um, subordination, so subordinated masculinity. So the hegemony is the cultural dominance of the whole. Within that, there's specific relations. Her example, and again, I stress this is 1995, for subordinated masculinity is homosexuality. So, quote, gay men are subordinated to straight men by an array of quite material practices. Um, She writes that gayness in patriarchal ideology is the repository of whatever is symbolically expelled from hegemonic masculinity. Uh, And again, like this is I think you can sort of see this in action where like now in 2019, there are definitely instances of gay masculinity that aren't subordinated masculinities. Um, And one of my sources actually does like sort of critically address that idea. Um, It's it's almost like since we since. Like you were talking about how this used to be sex role and then it became gender role. It's almost like acknowledging that masculinity can contain different sex roles. <laughs> yeah, okay. no, I totally can. 
So complicit masculinity is a relationship that's complicity with the hegemonic project. So quote, and I like this quote from her, um, a great many men who draw the patriarchal dividend and um, the patriarchal dividend is the word she uses to describe how men as like a whole group benefit from the subordination of people who aren't men. So a great many men who draw the patriarchal dividend also respect their wives and mothers, are never violent towards women, do their accustomed share of the housework, bring home the family wage, and can easily convince themselves that feminists must be bra-burning extremists. Mm. So within masculinity, there's this pattern of complicit where men who are not necessarily buying into the whole subordination of women idea nonetheless are complicit in supporting Absolutely. The subordination of women, yes. right? Yes. I, so then the fourth masculinity yes. is marginalized masculinity. So she separates subordinated masculinity and marginalized masculinity, which I find really interesting. Mm. So this dynamic between masculinities, um, she puts like, for instance, quote, in a white supremacist context, black masculinities play symbolic roles for white gender construction and conversely, hegemonic masculinities among whites sustains the institutional oppression and physical terror that have framed the making of masculinities and black communities. Um, she does note that the term masculinities is not ideal but says that she cannot improve on it to discuss the relations between masculinities and dominant and subordinated classes or ethnic groups. Marginalization is, quote, always relative to the authorization of the hegemonic masculinity of the dominant group. Thus, in the United States, particular black athletes may be exemplars for hegemonic masculinity, but the fame and wealth of individual stars has no trickle-down effect. It does not yield social authority to black men generally. Okay. So subordinated masculinity is like a denial almost, right? Like a symbolic denial of a certain group's masculinity. Okay. And then marginalized masculinity is a, ma is a relationship where hegemonic masculinity like marginalizes a particular group in order to continue the hegemonic project. And she writes, quote, I emphasize that terms such as hegemonic masculinities and marginalized masculinities name not fixed character types but configurations of practice generated in particular situations in a changing structure of relationships. So again, her whole project is to not look at individual traits of men, but to look at broad social interactions that are happening along these lines that she's defining. Okay. So I'm going to take us back to the introduction to exploring masculinities by Pasco and Bridges, um, because again, I think they do a good job of sort of contextualizing the field and like her impact to it. Mm -hmm. So thinking about this relation, these relationships of power within gender, right? They write, these configurations take place in a particular gender order in which one might find more specific gender regimes. The term gender order refers to overarching patterns and gender arrangements in relations. Although not only women are nurses, for instance, women dominate the field. Yet, gender relations are, in certain moments and in certain contexts, at odds with the gender order as well. Connell uses the term gender gender regimes to make sense of this fact. Hmm. The gender arrangements of a particular institution or in a specific organization or context can be referred to as a gender regime. E.g., in a particular context, women hold more institutional power, such as a female CEO, but this doesn't challenge the overarching gender order. So like that sort of just breaks down how there can be what seems like resistances or reversals within the system, um, but they still 
don't challenge the whole gender order. Mm-hmm. Hegemonic masculinity still remains. Um, they write, the vast majority of scholarship on masculinities has primarily utilized Connell's theory by exporting her concept, hegemonic masculinity, to different settings to make sense of various individuals and groups. But, quote, when Connell produced her theory of gender relations, she cautioned readers at the outset not to consider her theory, or any other for that matter, as outside of the social relations it sought to explore, writing, and I really love this quote, theories don't grow on trees. (laughs) Theorizing is itself a social practice with politics. Oh. (laughs) Which I love. Very true. I want to print that on a shirt. That's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, again, the reason I wanted to work with Connell is because she's someone who does reflect on her own theories and revisits them and addresses criticism and talks about, like, well, here's what should change. Here's what I still believe. Right. Mm -hmm. So, of course, any theory like this one has its limits. And so I'm going to sort of go through things that have been criticized or uh, qualified. and um, By Pasco? No, by um, Connell and other scholars. Okay. So this is a 2005 article um, named Hegemonic Masculinity, Rethinking the Concept. It's Raywin Connell writing with um, James W. Messerschmidt, and it was published in a journal, uh, Gender and Society. So what Connell and Messerschmitt do in this article is they identify what they, I love sociologists because they always do this like numbered list thing. Mm -hmm. So they identify uh, five principal criticisms um, (laughs) and it's that the underlying concept of masculinity, it's flawed itself, that there's ambiguity and overlap in the way that people use hegemonic masculinity and the other masculinities. Um, They point out the problem of reification writing Holter is uh, Holter, who's another scholar, a sociologist, mm-hmm. and the most conceptually sophisticated of all critiques, argues that the concept of hegemonic masculinity constructs masculine power from the direct experience of women rather than from the structural basis of women's subordination. Holter believes that we must distinguish between patriarchy, the long-term structure of the subordination of women, and gender, a specific system of exchange that arose mm. in the context of modern capitalism. Yeah, interesting. The masculine subject. Um, I love this quote. Does the concept necessarily erase the subject. We flatly disagree with Whitehead's 2002 claim that the concept of hegemonic masculinity reduces to structural determinism. Masculinity is defined as a configuration of practice organized in relation to the strategic gender relations. Yeah. And then the fifth criticism is the actual pattern of gender relations. Um, They write, in social theories of gender, there has often been a tendency towards functionalism. Um, So basically, I like this essay because it's a little bit petty because they they literally go through and they're like, I mean, this writing's good, but actually I was doing this, (laughs) (laughs) which is very good. Um, But I think it's like interesting that 10 years later, she was like, okay, yeah, let's come back to this and rethink it. And then from those five criticisms that they, like main criticisms that they synthesize based on various writing, Mm -hmm. they move into what they call a review and reformulation, where they go through and they say, here's what we should keep, here's what we should reject, here's what needs to change. So she writes that they should retain the combination of the plurality of masculinities and the hierarchy of masculinities and a, quote, pattern of hegemony, not a pattern of simple domination based on force, e.g. that masculine domination is bound up institutional power and not necessarily physical power so that's the stuff that she says we should keep okay she writes that we should reject a quote too simple model of the social relations surrounding hegemonic masculinities 
that, for example, it's not a global endeavor, as she originally tried to write about it. Um, Mm. So, for instance, dominance in gender relations involves an interplay of costs and benefits. Challenges to hegemonic masculinity arise from the protest masculinities of marginalized ethnic groups, and bourgeoisie women may appropriate aspects of hegemonic masculinity in constructing corporate or professional careers. Mm. So it's more complicated, basically, right? Also... She says that we should abandon the reliance on, quote, trait terminology, e.g. masculinity is an assemblage of traits or a fixed character type. So that's something in the 1995 book she tried to get away from, but ultimately ended up sort of falling back on because it's very hard to define masculinity without coming up with a laundry list of traits. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, yes, yeah, so she or she's saying like, yes, that's a problem. We need to figure out how as sociologists we move past talking about traits. Mm-hmm. So that's the retain and the reject reformulate. I don't have any quotes for this. I just sort of summarized. Right. Okay. So she writes that we should reformulate the nature of gender hierarchy. So again, like that these things are more complicated. The geography of masculine configurations, the process of social embodiment and the dynamics of masculinity. So again, basically like these core ideas are there, but this is significantly more complicated than was originally proposed. So identifying ways that social relations are more complex than originally resumed, assumed rather, mm-hmm. particularly with regards to the agency of subordinated and marginalized groups. And that hegemonic masculinities might adopt non-hegemonic qualities, and this is a quote, in practice, both incorporation and oppression can occur together, such as varying experiences by gay men and butch women. So not all gay men experience gender oppression in the same way, at the same times in their lives, right? Absolutely, yeah. Right, so kind of coming (laughs) back to this idea that, like, sometimes hegemonic masculinity takes on these ideas, of what a what she would have called a subordinated masculinity mm-hmm. in order to continue the hegemonic project. She argues that we need to bring back a co-focus on femininity and the role women play in masculine construction, writing, quote, gender hierarchies are also affected by new configurations of women's identity in practice, especially among younger women, which are increasingly acknowledged by younger men. Okay. She also wants a more holistic approach that reduces the, quote, isolation of men's studies and a decolonized post-colonial approach. She also wants a more sophisticated, quote, treatment of embodiment and hegemonic masculinity, particularly with regard to transgender practices, because she acknowledges that, for instance, her project on masculinity and other projects on masculinity don't address trans masculine experience mm. and what that means. Mm-hmm. Right. So she so she sort of finishes that with this good quote um, to understand embodiment and hegemony. We need to understand that bodies are both objects of social projects and agents in social practice. So 10 years later, she comes back, she co-writes this, and she basically says, like, here's criticism. Some of it's good. Some of it I disagree with, or it's like misusing the theory. But ultimately, what we need to do is start thinking about these things in a more nuanced way, looking Mm -hmm. at like a more holistic approach. Cool. And then the last thing I'm going to address directly from her that I just wanted to pull out because it's actually really recent. um, This is from 2016. It's titled Masculinities and Global Perspectives, Hegemony, Contestation, and Changing Structures of Power. And it was published in the journal Theory and Society. So this is Connell again. I don't want to go deep into it, but I just want to point out that, again, so 2016, so 11 years after the 2005 article, Mm -hmm. she comes back again (laughs) and writes this article basically calling for revision and expansion in response to post-colonial critique and an acknowledgement of the impact of colonizing on hegemony, the force of the global north versus the global south. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so she writes that for a deeper understanding of the issues raised in debates about hegemonic masculinity, we need to learn not only from Western Europe and North America, but also from the majority of the world. We need, in short, to decolonize the study of masculinities. So the problem with the Eurocentricism of global gender discourse is that it projects into gender analysis everywhere the image that the society of the global north holds of itself. Specifically, mm. it presumes coherence and a self-sustaining logic for any gender order. This is implicit in the concepts of patriarchy, sex gender system, gender norms, gender regime, and heteronormativity. Eurocentric gender research and policymaking assumes the gender has a system-like character, a logical homogeneity, and though it may change, it does so with continuity and time. So, like, she's coming back and saying, like, hey, when we write about masculinity, we have to address the fact that it's not a system everywhere. Mm. <laughs> the system of gender is a specifically Eurocentric project, mm. which is interesting, right? So I just wanted to, like, sort of highlight those three. She's written more on masculinities and other, like, sexuality and, and gender stuff in general. Um, but, like, I like that she's a scholar who comes back to her own ideas and constantly like calls for it to be like critiqued and expanded and played with and acknowledges even like within her own writing, like the Eurocentrism of cool. like the Academy of the North. Right. Yeah. So the last thing I'm going to look at that sort of addresses her work is an, um, something from the exploring masculinities anthology. Um, it's the chapter negotiating the field of masculinity, the production and reproduction of multiple dominant masculinities. Um, it's by Tony Cole. It was originally published in 2009. So this is like an edited version of his 2009 essay, which offers an example, I think, of how to expand on and critique hegemonic masculinity in the way that she called for that sort of expands on the nuances of it. Right. Okay. So Cole writes, the work of Connell has been both profound and pervasive in its influence on the study of men and masculinities. However, there are limitations, particularly in relation to the disparity between the theoretical concept of hegemonic masculinity as the culturally dominant ideal and men's lived experiences in a variety of dominant masculinities. Um, so what he's sort of doing is it's not there's his argument basically is that hegemonic masculinity is not one thing. Mm -hmm. There's multiple dominant masculinities that people are living under. Yes. So, quote, men's masculinities are constantly in flux, yet the fluidity of masculinity is rarely given critical consideration in the context of men's lives. While masculinity is understood to be a fluid, socially constructed concept that changes over time and space, i.e. historically and culturally. It is often only discussed at the structural level, with little consideration given to the strategies men use to negotiate masculinities in their everyday life. Cole does focus mostly on men and how men navigate masculinities instead of, like, also how women navigate masculinities. But okay. uh, furthermore, the concept of hegemonic masculinity as the descriptor of the culturally dominant ideal only takes into consideration dominant and subordinate marginalized masculinities at the structural level without taking into account men's lived realities of their own masculinities as dominant in relation to other men, despite being subordinate in the relation of the other ideal. So essentially, his argument is that on the theoretical level, hegemonic masculinity is too simple, mm -hmm. um, that it makes little sense to use patriarchy to describe the power differentials in and between various subpopulations of men, where much of the tensions and struggles over masculinity occur. So hegemonic masculinities largely refers to the struggle between the dominance of men and the subordination of women. And he's saying that within masculinity, within like the lives of men, there's power differentials on like what actually constitutes 
a dominant masculinity. And so he pulls on a French anthropologist and philosopher, um, Bourdieu, and his his ideas of like how people live out their daily lives through, quote, practices that are synchronized with the actions of others around them. Okay. The idea of social capital, basically. Right. So his argument is basically that masculinity as a field of relations, um, for example, in gay masculinities, gay men may feel that their masculinity is not the one that's subordinated if they fit dominant gay masculinities within the field of gay masculinity. Hmm. So I thought that was like a good example of how scholars have critiqued the limits of Connell's theory. And especially because it pulls on that idea of gay masculinity, which is the example that Connell uses for subordinated. Okay. So that's sort of an overview of this idea of hegemonic masculinity, which is really commonly talked about and used to sort of get at mm-hmm. how masculinity functions, right? Mm-hmm. So now what I want to talk about is this idea that Kathy was talking about in our intro about the gendered practices of comics. Mm-hmm. So when I was doing research for this episode, um, what I'm interested in is embodiment of masculinity and like how it's made on the page. And there's not a lot about that that doesn't deal with superheroes. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Which I guess like makes sense because I think visibly superheroes embody elements of what people would call hegemonic masculinity. Yeah. And uh, honestly, and even female superheroes also sort of embody that, right? Yeah. So like uh, it makes sense. I do want to note that there is some really important work being done on black masculinities in superhero comics and comics in general. I read a couple of those. Yeah. So there's a really good documentary by John. Jonathan Gales, um, White Scripts and Black Supermen, mm. and The Blacker the Ink by Francis Gateward and John Jennings also addresses masculinity within comic books as part of their project on like black comics and how blackness is depicted in comics. So I just wanted to highlight that because I, I there's I don't have like the that beyond my scope to really go into, but if that's like a project that you're interested in, there is a lot of really critical work being done. And I think it's easier to find than other writings on this topic. Um, So when I was talking to Kathy about this and trying to figure out what I wanted to talk about in regards to comics, I kind of went back to a while ago on this podcast, we talked about Bart Beatty's comics versus art. The first one. (laughs) Definitions of comics and then also high culture (laughs) or high art. So that would be episode one and episode two. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, Bart Beatty has like this really interesting argument that he makes first in a 2004 journal article and then revises on it and puts it as a book chapter in Comics vs. Art, which came out in 2009, about Roy Lichtenstein and like this idea between Lichtenstein as like how he is both masculinized by the art world and feminized by the comics world, basically. And like the interplay between masculinity as like a legitimizing force. Mm. and pop art and comic books and he uses Lichtenstein because obviously um cartoonists don't like Lichtenstein (laughs) yeah so he's the one who took panels and then yeah made the panels large paintings in the pop art movement yeah and so he would often put a couple of panels together or like take things out of context and he became obviously very well off and famous. And the idea was is that he was sort of commenting on the kitschiness of comics. 
So cartoonists don't like yeah. them. I just sort of wanted to summarize. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, you're right. You're good. Um, so he he deals with this interesting quote by a um, comic artist talking about um, Lichtenstein. The reason I'm bringing it up is because he uses it in both um, the 2004 and the 2009. He close reads this quote. And it's Irv Novik, who was a artist who did wartime comics. And this is uh, two other cartoonists summarizing his recollection, right? Um, So he had a curious encounter at camp. He dropped by the chief of staff's quarters one night and found a young soldier sitting on a bunk crying like a baby. He said he was an artist, Novik remembered, and that he had to do menial work like cleaning up the officer's uh, quarters. It turned out to be Roy Lichtenstein. The work he showed me was rather poor and academic. Feeling sorry for the kid, Novik got on the horn and got him a better job. Later on, one of the first things he started copying was my work. He didn't come into his own doing things that were worthwhile until he started doing things that were less academic than that. He was just making large copies of the cartoons I had drawn and painting them. Mm. So Beatty really focuses on that quote for the specific phrase crying like a baby. Mm. Both his book chapter and this essay are titled Roy Lichtenstein's Tears. (laughs) Because the cartoonists in that scenario are using crying to paint Lichtenstein as failing at masculinity. He was in a war scene and he was crying like a baby, right? So he's right. like a feminine boy. Right. So I'm using that as framing to sort of like talk about like he, BD is making this interesting argument about how masculinity and femininity interplay in these practices and like these institutions. Mm. So to quote from the book, in his essays, Mass Culture as Women, Modernism's Other in 1986, Andreas Hoysen suggests that gendered theories of mass culture equating the commercial or popular with the feminine and high culture with the masculine have been largely abandoned. Pop art's relationship to comic books would seem to indicate otherwise. And then he goes on to say, it was clear, therefore, that Likenson's success stemmed at least in part from the association of his work with the masculine that is to say, the legitimated value. So while his source material was held up as an example of the feminized traits in American mass culture that the artist had successfully recovered and repatriated. So what he's saying is that within the art world, Lichtenstein was painted as like a very properly masculine figure. Like he had like this um, status as just being like kind of like a white working class dad. Like that was just sort of the image that critics painted of him. Mm-hmm. And that was contrasted against the, quote, feminine work that he was making, which was like lifted from comic books, which kit were kitschy and kitschy was considered feminine. Right. By the art world. By the art world, which is interesting because and I think this goes back to the way that these relationships are very dependent. Uh, and this is anecdotal, mm-hmm. not scholarship, but. For me, growing up as a child, growing up as a teen, I guess, in the aughts, I was always under the impression that art was feminized, like fine art was the feminized process and pop culture stuff was more masculinized because of like nerd culture and like the association, especially with men who participate in art as being like effeminate and gay. Um, I went to art school. So like that was a, a joke that people made at me all the time. Okay. <laughs> okay. I think it's like sort of a class reversal, right? Of like the feminized group is the group that whichever class you're in looks down on basically as a way of legitimizing themselves. Right. So Beatty makes this interesting analysis of Lichtenstein's work. So Lichtenstein primarily took panels from war comics and romance comics, which were genres that sort of existed pre-comics code, right? And were heavily gendered. So romance comics were for teenage girls and women and war comics were for men, more or less, right? Obviously, not probably true in practice. 
But it is interesting that they were still gender divided by audience. I'm going to talk about that too. Like, like the gender, they gender their audiences. Yeah. So while Lichtenstein was masculinized as an artist during the 1960s, his paintings were further calling into question a number of assumptions about the role of gender in the arts. It is important to note the ways in which Lichtenstein's images emphasized gender distinctions and polarized the opposition between masculinity and femininity. Um, So again, images of the war and romance comics, which were he picked specifically from the romance comic uh, images of women in the home. So he actually created in romance comics, the women went everywhere, but he created this idea of like domesticity. Like he specifically intentionally always placed his women in the home. Hmm. So these images, which predominantly feature men in the war comics and women in the images of home romance comics correspond to obvious ways to traditional american gender norms by amplifying stereotypes uh lichtenstein places gender at the heart of the relation between higher and consumer culture so bd brings up that during this time so pop art within the art so again this is interesting so within the art so within like the art high art movement pop art is considered delegitimate um because it's working with kitsch and consumerist culture okay so susan sontag who is a she she was like a theorist she wrote a lot about photography she was also like an art critic she writes this essay called notes on camp and camp beauty defines it as feminized kitsch camp is like a obviously like sort of a gendered word people mainly use it to refer to like queer male expression mm-hmm. right like mm-hmm. being campy Yep. Sontag calls it a, quote, snob taste shared by mainly homosexuals who constitute themselves as aristocrats of taste, Um, which yikes. I'm not Sontag is. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, she writes this essay in defense of pop art by basically saying comics are camp. And what Lichtenstein is doing is recuperating them and making them into like these images of high art. So Beatty writes with Sontag's intervention into the debate about pop art, comic books moved from a degraded kitsch position to a gay associated camp position that the homosocial world of comic book producers and fans found utterly terrifying. As an extremely masculinist subculture, comic book fans and producers worked diligently to thwart suggestions of homosexuality wherever they arose, policing boundaries and chafing at what they deemed to be inappropriate suggestions. Mm. Pop art, therefore, was a threat because it absconded with the one element comic book fans assumed would never be in question. The red-blooded American masculinity that have formed war and romance comics alike with their rigid adherence to patriarchal gender norms. Mm. The reason I bring this up is because when we were talking about this episode, like, I remembered this chapter because because it's always really struck me as like a very interesting, like nuanced reading of the gendered relationship in comics. Mm. And that idea that like association with camp was threatening because it feminized what comics were basically. Not only feminized them, it associated them with being gay. And like, if you think about the reaction to like seduction of the innocent and the, how would you say that? The like, accusation of homosexuality in superhero comics in that case batman and robin and also wonder woman wonder woman and candy and how like strongly there was pushback against that um i think like beauty is onto something (laughs) Mm. with this idea of like 
how the institution of comics perceives itself as masculine. Mm. It's interesting in this contemporary context where I don't I don't think pop culture is still seen as inherently feminine anymore because of the rise of like nerd culture and like comics are for boys and tabletop games are for boys and like I don't know anything about pop culture in the 50s. Yeah. I know I mean sci-fi fantasy has always been I mean not that women and queers have always been part of sci-fi fantasy. Yeah. But it's very masculine in my interpretation of stuff like Conan the Barbarian and stuff and oh, yeah. early pulp. Yeah, I think um I mean I I think like I'm I'm going like the way that like uh, that Andreas uh Hoysen article like argued that like consumerist culture was considered more feminized because it wasn't like valued the way that art is um but i don't know what like if hoisin was coming from like that as an like an artist perspective you know and again it sounds like like as an artist perspective because i think yeah and again i think there's like differences in the how these things are perceived depending on like which group you belong to yes for sure absolutely yeah so like I think what I'm trying to get at is that I think something that needs to be looked at more and it's not being looked at enough. I mean, it's being looked at a little bit, but like, again, it goes back to this idea that like we don't like masculinity is treated as invisible. There is a lot of work being done on women in comics. Like I have so many articles that are just about like 40 percent of women read comics now Uh, (laughs) or like, you know, stuff about like harassment in comics and how women are treated in comics. But there's not a lot looking at the way that publishing is gendered or like the way that we like culturally treat reading comics is gendered. I mean, there's a lot of stuff like countering that narrative, but like no one's actually writing about the narrative. Everything just sort of starts out from the presumption that the narrative exists. And like, I think what I'm interested in is like there being projects that sort of are like looking at what the gender relations in the actual practice of making comics are. Mm. And like a way I can cite maybe is the nice way of putting that. In a way you can cite and not like the cultural (laughs) zeitgeist of Twitter. I understand. Listen, I want like a really in-depth exploration. Yeah. You know no, what I mean? No, I mean, that's the, I mean, you want scholarship on it. Yeah. Yeah. I want, I want scholarship on it. Yeah. And I mean, maybe it's out there and I just couldn't find it, which is possible. I don't have access to everything, but like, that's like the project I'm really interested in. I mean, I know that publishing is vastly white women yes. who do publishing, but that's not true. That's like editors and agents and, um, Yeah. People who are within publishing are often white women, but that doesn't mean the institution isn't run by men. It still feels like a masculinized institution for sure. Um, Yeah, I mean, that goes back to that idea of gender order, right? Or, I mean, I'm even just saying the bosses of the bosses who own the companies are men. Yeah, that too, also. Because I I do think think there is a lot of room. There's like a lot of room for um, white girl experiences Mm -hmm. in publishing and education libraries it's because it is like teaching and libraries is a very feminized um, arena um so i think there's a lot of room for white girls but i feel like it's not i feel like there's definitely like once you you move out of the space of 
younger audiences, yes. it becomes masculinized. Like, it's like yes. very, like, YA is huge, and it's because adult women read YA. Yeah. It's not necessarily young adults reading it so much. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's because it's, like, still, like, very infantilized, right? Um, But the, the, I, yeah, the actual gendered of creation, the gendering of cre- mm-hmm. of creating, I think is very interesting. Yeah. I think there's a lot yeah. of conversation about the way labor is distributed among millennials. Yes. Right now, thanks to bu- that BuzzFeed article. Yeah. It's hard for me not to like think about the ways it's a double it's a double thing, right? Like I think about the ways in which um illustration has both been sort of dis like in my again in my personal experiences coming up through art school, right? Um, has both sort of been dismissed as being not as serious as fine art and being like kind of like a, a, a feminized companion to fine art, but also like very rigidly masculine as I, an actual industry. I think I think you're really getting to something. I think it's like for cartoonists and illustration, very much so. Like if you think about the history, yeah. the North American history of both those, like the Society of Illustrators was very masculine. Like people would yeah. wear suits. And same with, like, comic books was very... Like, the people who worked in comics, you had to be a man. Yeah, yeah. Um, And it seems like the legitimizing of these industries, in order to legitimize them, they end up becoming masculinized, right? In order to get recognition in the larger culture that this is something to respect. Mm -hmm. I mean, people talk about it a lot in terms of, like, the number one cartoonist who's being read is Raina Telgemeier by young women. I mean, she's recognized, but it's really, like, her lack of canonization is, like, Mm -hmm. really shocking, right? Like, no one is studying Smile when you really should be. It's been on New York Times bestseller list for literally years. And so, like, it's it's in order to canonize something, it has to be masculinized. And it is, I think it's interesting to also with that look at the publishers because thinking about the f- the books by women that are canonized a lot of them come out of like publishers which i would characterize as like very masculine like just based on yeah. like the way they the, the way they operate and the work they've done versus like smile yeah. is published by like scholastic which is feminized but it's very masculine yeah so it becomes feminized yeah exactly yeah, it's like very like these little dynamics are like it's once you start trying to untangle them, it's like like what the project that I think I want to work on next, maybe I really want to look at the ways that like masculine identity was constructed in the underground. So I don't know. There's like these dynamics are really interesting to me. Yeah. All right. So um, that's what I got for my segment. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Um, So what do you have for us? Yeah, so I want to preface my segment with trigger warning, content warning, that I'm going to be using a couple of slurs because they are the titles of um, some of my sources. And I'm also going to be talking about school shootings. Mm -hmm. So obviously I try to be really respectful when I'm talking about these type of things, but uh, that's a content warning, so take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. So... I wanted to introduce my segment with sort of a conversation about shared languages and sort of the definition of masculinity. A couple of my sources, like I'm actually going to be using CJ Pasco, who E had referenced in their segment. Yeah. But 
Uh, some of my sources are also using masculinity. Some of them understand hegemonic masculinity, and some of them use masculinity sometimes just in reference to boys. Yeah. Because some of my sources are not necessarily academic or theoretical sources. Right. I, th- I think what I want to do is I actually just want to make space for people's writing who are not in academia, right? Like some of them are just middle school teachers. um, And so they use masculinity in different ways. Mm -hmm. And like I told E last night, I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? Like I don't want to get too nitpicky with the definition of masculinity when they might be talking about their lived or observed experiences. Yeah, I do want to say that like, especially in writings about pedagogy, teachers are really your most valuable source. So I like definitely agree with Kathy about like making space for people whose language might not be perfect. Right. Yep. And so I just want to say this language, the word of masculinity might start to shift, but I and E are going to try to stick with the definition that we've already created. Yeah. Um, I also sort of wanted to talk about the difference with what my segment is going to be talking about, which is the masculinity, sort of the creation of masculinity within adolescence. So the creation of masculinity within middle school and high schools, and also how that masculinity can start to become very negative, right? Like it can start to become very violent, Mm -hmm. right? And we're going to take that to the extreme when we start to talk about school violence and school shootings. Yeah. So it is... A relatively negative topic. But I did want to talk about how the difference with, so we are on episode 18. In episode 7, titled Violence and Comics and How It Affects Us, me and E have already talked about violence in comics and also violence in schools. There's a big difference between these two things, right? And the conclusion of that episode, the conclusion was that actually consuming violent media does not cause the consumer to become violent. Right. But what does create the social conditions to cause someone to become violent are things like hegemonic masculinity, right? Right, yeah. So that's sort of like the huge difference. It's the difference between propaganda and like a one-to-one relationship with images in media. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get you. Great. And then (laughs) also there's like a really tight relationship with episode 16 which is the incarceration and school to prison pipeline episode Mm -hmm. and also episode 17 which is the trans student school climate right yeah so all this has to do with the gendered experience and also the racially gendered experience within schools yeah yeah and the school dynamics of those so i wanted to shout out the previous episodes and how we are building upon those so my first source is by cj pasco It's titled, Dude, You're a Fag, Masculinity and Sexuality in High School. Mm. It's originally from 2007, but I have the updated version from 2012. Okay. So the updated version actually just has a new preference, actually talking about the ways social media becomes part of teens creating their gendered masculinities. Mm -hmm. So before 2007, there wasn't so much because I actually graduated high school in 2007. So we had like MySpace. All right. Pasco in this book 
defines masculinity as what it is not. Mm -hmm. So it is not women or queers. Mm. So in page five, my findings illustrate that masculinity is not a homogeneous category that any boy possesses by virtue of being male. Mm -hmm. Rather, masculinity, as constituted and understood in the social world I studied, is a configuration of practices and discourses that different youths, boys and girls, may embody in different ways to a different degrees. Mm -hmm. Masculinity, in this sense, is associated with the male body. Adolescent masculinity is understood in this setting as a form of dominance usually expressed through sexualized discourses. Mm -hmm. So why teens and masculinity? Why are we talking about teenagers and masculinity? And it's because it's the time of a person's life when people are working on finding and creating their identities, right? So there's a lot of intense identity work that occurs during adolescence that Pasco says. To quote, regardless of its universal, timeless, localized, or temporal features, adolescence is currently constructed as a time in which teenagers work to create identity and make the transition from childhood to adulthood. Mm -hmm. It is also constructed as a turbulent time psychologically, biologically, and socially. I love the Pasco is recognizing that this is a social construction, yeah, right? Yeah. It's a social construction that teenagers have to be engaging with identity work in this time. Yeah, because, I mean, teenager is an invented demographic in the first place. <laughs> yeah, I mean, childhood, <laughs> it's all invented, right? Yeah. So, and actually, we have talked about this before, the invention of the adolescent yeah. in the United States in the early 20th century. So that was by G. Stanley Hall. He's the psychologist who created and popularized the concept of adolescence. And Hall actually described it as a time when boys engage in masculinizing activities to set them apart from girls. So it's almost as if adolescent masculinity is already like inherently part of the definition of teenage. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's socially constructed. Mm -hmm. So how is masculinity constructed in this setting? And dude, you're a fag. This book is really focused on the heterosexual practices that create the masculine identity. It's very tied to sex and sexuality, right? So this book argues strongly that masculinity is constructed through heterosexual performance. It talks about various observed school rituals, such as a performance at a pep rally mm -hmm. of wimpy slash nerdy boys getting bullied, and then they pump iron and get strong, and then they intimidate other bullies and win the girls. Right. So what Pasco did is that Pasco went and studied a whole high school and just like took note of and observed all these sort of rituals. Right. Right. OK. Pasco says heterosexuality is central to masculinity. So uh, in this pep rally performance, the wimpy slash nerdy boys sort of performed what could have been perceived as gay movements on stage. Okay. So the audience would have recognized that the nerds were sort of gay. OK. Right? In the conclusions at the end of this book, Pasco adds to this heterosexual discourse, emphasizing the violent and disturbing nature of it. Okay. To quote, indicate that they would control girls' bodies. They got girls in ways that ranged from seemingly benign to the quite frankly violent and dangerous. Mm. Pasco recognizes that boys that they did interview did indicate that they genuinely had feelings and loved their girlfriends. Yeah. And that they were not faking their sexuality. But, to quote, possessing intense emotions for one's girlfriend 
doesn't negate the fact that the same girlfriend may also serve as a masculinity resource, bolstering a boy's claim on heterosexuality. Mm. In public contexts, which is where manifestations of compulsive heterosexuality occur, boys tended to close off, hide, or otherwise deny emotional attachments to girls. Okay, interesting. So how is masculinity present in schools? Schools themselves reinforce masculinity and gender roles. Right. So schools really police the gender of their students. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've talked about dress codes before in the trans school climate episode, episode 17. Mm -hmm. So there are the ways in which school dress codes reinforce gender roles in like an institutional way. And also teachers can reinforce masculinity and gender roles through heteronormative assumptions. So um, Pasco talks about displaying prom pictures on the wall, sort of this exploration of heterosexuality. So prom is a lot sort of like the next steps to marriage or something. You take photos with your prom date, dress nicely. And also Pasco talks about how teachers make jokes about how boy and girl friends are like dating like there shouldn't be like a friendship with different sex yeah, friends yeah, yeah, like yeah. it should they must be dating or romantic in some sense and so that is ways in which the school institutionally sort of reinforces masculinizing and gender roles right and also pasco has a few observations about race mm-hmm. african-american boys were more likely to be punished by school authorities for engaging in these masculinizing practices yeah for behaviors that were expected of white boys Right. In part, the economic positionings of many of the black boys rendered them more vulnerable to school surveillance. Mm-hmm. So Pasco talks about how if you don't have a car, you have to spend more time at school, which causes you to be surveilled more and things like that. How socioeconomic situations can cause specifically African-American students to be under observation and scrutiny more often. Mm -hmm. And so that's directly tied into episode 16, where we talked about the school to prison pipeline and the surveillance of black bodies. And uh, another observation by Pasco is that because of different cultural history and reliance on symbolic power as a result of their lack of institutional power, the black um, boys didn't call each other fags for engaging in several activities considered unmasculine by white boys, such as dancing, touching, or caring about clothing, Mm. which I thought was also very interesting. Yeah. And actually, as E mentioned, the black children that Pasco observed were regarded as sexually threatening to other girls and white boys. At the same time, they were structurally less powerful and rendered vulnerable by their lack of institutional and economic resources. Um, So sort of recognizing the different masculinities, um, Pasco doesn't actually talk about the different definitions of masculinities, like marginalized masculinities that he talked about, Mm -hmm. but this is sort of a recognition of that. Yeah. Also, Pasco recognizes girl masculinity and how for them it's still tied to sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. So to quote, for girls, challenging heterosexual identities often solidifies a more masculine identity, which is the opposite for boys. These gendering processes are encoded at multiple levels, institutional, interactional, and individual, right? So institutionally, the girls who challenged heterosexual assumptions Mm -hmm. ended up becoming more masculinized yeah it is worth i didn't address it because i didn't have the space it is worth noting that there's a lot of writing on female masculinities and like 
how that's bound up in queer, like queer studies, specifically like Jack Halberstam's book, Female Masculinities, which is about like butch lesbianism and things. Yeah. And for the students that Pasco observed, these are the students who are involved in the GSA, the Gay Straight yeah. Alliance. So as part of the institution. Yeah, definitely. Um, so to sort of move on to the next thing is sort of this masculinizing that takes place in schools and how it can be taken to the extreme with school violence and school shootings. So the next article I have is titled Faggots, Fame, and Firepower. Mm. It is by Richard T. Evans. Okay. And it is from 2016. So this is very recent. So to sort of summarize the article, Evans compares thematic similarities between fictional films and novels about school shootings and violence and their real life counterparts. So sort of talking about media studies around school violence. Okay. To quote, Primary among these interconnection of masculinity, heterosexuality, and homophobia that both affects the end infects the way in which the shooters and the victims perceived and interacted with each other before the massacre. Okay. So one of the things that Evans posits that is a reason students engage in school shootings would be fame and recognition. Okay. This recognition is sought not only for the magnitude of the shooter's accomplishment, but also for the distinctly masculine sense of dominance they temporarily wield over their classmates and their community. Mm. Before I get deeper into this, I think this is an uncomfortable topic to talk about, but I think it's still extremely important and relevant. Yes. So I want to be talking about it really sensitively, but I also want to not shy away from it because I think shying away from it, as we have observed in recent years, school shootings are very much on the rise. Yeah. And I think it's something that needs to be talked about and studied. And I think the masculinizing expectations of adolescence, of white boy adolescence, um, I think is really important thing to look at. Yeah. So Evans sort of uh, references Dave Cullen's book Columbine from 2010. I haven't actually read it, but I have just ordered it. So okay. I'm going to be getting it soon. Cullen also wrote a book about Parkland that just came out. Okay. Okay. So to pull a quote from Cullen's book, um, quoted by Evans, talking about um, the othering of shooters, right? So they can't just be white boys of, of this community, right? They end up having to be immediately othered yeah. in some sense. The shooters and school shootings nowadays, the visible personification of the terrifying affliction that has infested America's small towns and suburbs are, without exception, male. As David Cullen writes... The perpetrator was always a white boy, always a teenager in a placid town few had ever heard of, but it was new to middle-class white parents. Each fresh horror left millions shaking their heads. It is this immediate exclusion from normalcy that seems to haunt and warp the image of the school shooter in the collective minds of the audience that witnesses the tragedy either live or on television. The killers must quickly be made other somehow. Right. Be cast in the light of an encompassing abnormality that sits in stark opposition to the average middle-class white boys who roam the hallways of countless American schools from Bellingham to Boca Raton. Right. Seemingly, the easiest and most comprehensive way to do this is to call into question and deride the masculinity and heterosexuality of the shooters. 
So Evans then moves into talking about the murder of Matthew Shepard to shape mm. the way masculinity and homophobia creates violence in this area mm-hmm. and this era. Okay, right? okay. So Matthew Shepard, I'm going to be talking about this, but Matthew Shepard, I'm sure many of us have heard of him. He was a gay man or he was an adult at this point, but I believe he was 19 when he was murdered. He was murdered by two straight men. Like he was murdered on the side of the road. Yeah. And this article actually ties in Columbine with the killing of Matthew Shepard because they were actually only six months apart. Oh, wow. I've never actually seen these two events that were like huge in the media in 1999, but I've never actually seen them tied together and they deeply need to be tied together. Yeah, yeah. So to quote, in order to better understand the necessity of acceptable masculinity and compulsory heterosexuality in the towns and cities of the foothills of the Rocky Mountains in the final years of the 20th century, 1998-1999, it is valuable to return to another violent crime that can give us some insight into the prevailing notions of what it is to be a proper man in the American Midwest. Less than six months before Columbine and less than 140 miles north of Littleton, Colorado, in the college town of Laramie, Wyoming, two part-time roofers and high school dropouts. I actually don't want to say their names. Okay, go ahead. It's sort of like a modern concept of talking about school shootings is actually to not say the names of the school shooters because that's that's like a new media thing right? Um, yeah, where yeah. it's like to sort of focus on the survivors and the victims rather than to over-focus on the actual shooters. Yeah, that makes sense. Now I'm not, and now I'm actually not sure if that is highly useful, right? Maybe in the media it is more sensitive to talk about victims and survivors, but I almost think we still need to study why these people do these things. Yeah, I think so. I'm not yes, I was gonna say, I think it's a little different when we're talking like in terms of like the media and the news cycle because then it's like it feeds back into that exceptionalizing, right? Of like, we're just gonna rather than, yeah, normalizing, right? Whereas, like, yeah. in our context, obviously, you're not focusing on the perpetrators in order to develop, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like a different context, it is, yeah, it is a different context. I think it's actually something that I'm actually really interested in is the way the media talks about school shootings, yeah. and that's sort of something I want to be getting at. But I also think personally, I'm not sure if I want to be using their names, yeah, okay. Less than six months before Columbine, and less than 140 miles north of Littleton, Colorado, in the college town of Laramie, Wyoming, two part-time roofers and high school dropouts kidnapped and beat to death a gay University of Wyoming student named Matthew Shepard. The murder shocked the nation, and Laramie, like Columbine, six months later, came to be a recognizable catchword for violence and murder. Mm. So, about... Matthew Shepard's killers. This to quote, fragile sense of their own manliness and their aversion to homosexuals. Shepard's killers appear to be young men of common prejudices, far more devastatingly human mm. than is comfortable to consider, and that their violent act may tell more about the everyday life of hate and hurt and heterosexual culture than about homophobia specifically. Mm. The author quotes another writer who published an article about the killing. It's just possible that Matthew Shepard didn't die because he was gay. He died because his killers 
were straight. Mm. So shifting away from the homosexual otherness to the never-discussed compulsory heterosexuality of adolescent masculinity, Mm -hmm. right? So shifting away from the fact that gays are other and focusing on compulsory heterosexuality. Right, okay. And that definition, the self-definition of that masculinity is what it is not. Mm, Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. So Colin goes on, now that we've defined more, like killing of Matthew Shepard was only six months and 140 miles away from where Columbine took place. Right. Right. So this is a very good recognition of the adolescent male masculinity of this area. Okay, yeah. Of homophobia of this area. Colin, in his book Columbine from 2010, dismisses that the killers of Columbine were social outsiders. Students of Columbine were interviewed and quoted by the media about the shooters, Mm -hmm. but the students did not know the people they were describing. The widely reported but erroneous story that the killers were part of the trench coat mafia Mm. that was described on CNN as goths, gays, outcasts, and a street gang. (laughs) So the trench coat mafia were portrayed as a cult of homosexual goths in makeup, orchestrating a bizarre death pact for the year 2000. It is perhaps not surprising that the source of these rumors were athletes that the two killers despised. So jocks that created these stories, and they also created stories that they had seen the killers grope each other, hold hands, and engage in group showering. And I don't know if you've seen the Gus Van Sant film, Elephant, that he made a few years later after Columbine. Have you seen that? I haven't, no. So there's actually a scene where the two school shooters, like, shower together. So it's, like, very much part of, like, the media's imagination that they engage in homosexual practices Mm, okay it's just not true so therein appears the need to quickly and succinctly other and isolate the perpetrators of a high school shooting and as was discussed previously there is no better way to cut a teenage boy off from his peers than by calling him a fag okay so a lot of these languages use that word and it's just like very 90s yeah like this like very 90s hate-filled word. Yeah. Despite the press's obsession with bullying and misfits, that's not how the boys presented themselves. One of the shooters laughed about picking on the new freshmen and calling them that word. Neither complained about bullies picking on them. They actually boasted about being bullies themselves. The two shooters hardly saw themselves as victims. Rather, they seemed somewhat desperately to strive for a masculine ideal rooted in an aggressive expression of violence heterosexuality and misogyny Hmm. there's actually recordings of the killers speaking racist and homophobic language right so the columbine shooters found themselves entangled in the need to constantly affirm their sense of manhood through asserting what they were not on the masculinity spectrum so they were not goths and they were not the people they mocked Reframing the killers of Columbine like this creates an image of them that looks more like the profile used for the killers from recent school shootings. Yeah. So it's more like the profiling of white boy, white man, engaging in masculinity. Right. Before this violence takes place. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's also too early for academia to have caught up to the recent school shootings Mm -hmm. to get any sort of proper media analysis. Yeah. This is... From my own observations, 
because um, Sandy Hook, which sort of spurred the more recent conversations about school shootings, that was only in 2012. Yeah. So it feels like that was actually kind of far away, but that's still pretty recent in uh, sort of scholarship. Yeah. But nowadays, there is a much more focus on gun ownership. And that's actually thanks to the Parkland students who are trying to create a social movement towards gun ownership. Yeah. And honestly, sort of talking about gun ownership seems to recognize that white masculinity is a problem and it's inherent. Yeah. And so in order to solve this problem, you just need to remove guns. Yeah. So I do have a quote from an article from April 2018 titled, We're the Generation That's Going to End It. Okay. It's a response to the recent school shooting in Florida, which have been a surge of activism among students nationwide. Yeah. So can they change the debate on guns? It's from 2018. Junior Scholastic published it. Mm -hmm. Today's teens have grown up in a world reshaped by school shootings. That includes the 1999 attack at Columbine High School in Colorado, which two teens killed 13 people, and the 2012 attack in Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut, in which a former student fatally shot 20 children and six adults. Mm -hmm. Unlike previous generations, young people today have spent years practicing active shooter drills. They've wondered whether a school shooting would happen at their score and who might do it. Mm-hmm. For so many of the Parkland students, the response to the aftermath of the attack wasn't so much a shock as a desire to take action. I mean, it's very sad. Yeah. I mean, it's very sad for many reasons, but it's very sad that it seems uncontrollable. Yeah. Like this masculinizing practice that creates these young white men, white boys, mm-hmm. to engage in school shooting. So the response now is to try to remove guns from this country, from their hands. So how can schools change these masculinizing practices? How can schools create change within their cultures to try to address this? Yeah. And the one that Pasco posits in Dude, You're a Fag yeah. is legal protections need to be in place to shield LGBT and other gender non-conforming students. So Pasco's answer is anti-discriminatory responses to marginalization. Yeah. So the answer is to make room for gender non-conforming students. The answer is to make room for transgender students. Yeah. To make room for different gender identities so there isn't such a strong need for masculinization, right? Yeah. young men to have this one masculinity, this one hegemonic masculinity that they're all seeking. Right. Right? I really like this answer. And actually, Pasco sort of points out something that we talked about last episode, in episode 17, when we talked about trans students and the school climate for them. Yeah. Is that Title IX is the only... legal response we have uh-huh, right yeah, title yeah. nine which just says you can't be gender discriminatory in education but it's just not enough right to quote boys sex talk and predatory behavior has become so normalized that teachers don't even recognize it as harassment mm. but rather consider it harmless flirting in order for title nine to come into effect this culture of the school needs to change and to begin to recognize that this behavior shores up normative gender and sexual identities and perpetuates unequal gender arrangements right i want to move on to 
sort of talking about gendered images in children's novels. Okay, yes, yeah. So this is in middle school, so children's novels, this is happening before they enter high school, but the gender roles and gender expectations start at infancy, right? People are usually assigned a gender when they're still in utero, right? Yes. So this genderizing, this expectations of gender roles, this expectation of masculinizing starts very early. So one of the forms that is the children's novel, right? So in this article by Tabor and Woloshin, from mm-hmm. 2011, they are discussing Dear Dumb Diary, Dork Diaries, and the one that I'm focusing mostly on is Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like almost more relevant to the lives of middle schoolers and high schoolers than superheroes. A lot of like what E was talking about, the masculine images, a lot of the scholarship wants to focus on superheroes. Yeah. I I don't think kids are really reading superhero comics. Definitely not to the extent. Like in the 40s, yes, but contemporarily, not so much. Kids are really reading Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Like, they've sold millions and millions and millions of copies of these, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I really like that this was actually like a very relevant media subject for this analysis in this paper. So gender themes in these three books written in cartoon diary form, although written for different audiences, Mm -hmm. each of these books constructs gender norms in similar ways. They promote heteronormative gender roles for boys and girls by endorsing traditional femininities and hegemonic masculinities. Okay. So children's literature is no more benign than any other form of cultural pedagogy. And I love this term, cultural pedagogy. Yeah. So what is raising our children and teaching our children within our culture outside of school, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Books for the young, perhaps even more than books intended for older readers, have always been used as weapons or instruments to train and cultivate taste to help children to see distinctions and distinguish themselves. Often traditional white middle-class norms are the sometimes unconscious weapons of choice wherein children learn lessons about gender, race, heteronormativity, and ability. Mm-hmm. This article points out that even in books that attempt to subvert st- gendered stereotypes, they can often accidentally conform to them. So dynamic for books that appear to champion a gentle and kinder version of masculinity for boys, masculinity is, in effect, defined as non-femininity. Right. Furthermore, yeah. hegemonic masculinities are, to a significant degree, constituted in men's interactions with women. Yes. While men and boys are normatively expected to be tough males with no trace of femininity, women are marginalized and stereotyped as being dependent on men and concerned about their own attractiveness and femininity. Right. One approach to challenge stereotypes in literature would be to simply to have more female characters in central active roles. However, often in doing so, masculinity continues to be privileged with women becoming central simply because they are take on men's tasks. And I think that is what I was referring to when I was talking about female superheroes. They're often just taking on the male superhero role, right? Yeah, it's that like strong female character trope right yeah um so talking about the images in children's literature to quote pictures do not simply accompany and mirror prose but influence how it is read 
visuals can complicate books' messages, giving authors and illustrators additional ways to express their own resistance to oppression, as well as advocate other modes of resistance. Mm-hmm. The authors start to discuss how in graphic novels and diary cartoons are often mixtures of prose and images, and that images need to be as analyzed as words. Quote, requiring different and possibly even more complex reading skills than traditional texts. Yeah. So the images are obviously still very deeply important to the way the messages are perceived. Right? Yeah, yeah. So the themes of these books talk about, they talk about popularity, bullying, and self-concept and self-esteem. So in popularity, in order to be popular and avoid being victimized, girls need to be pretty and boys need to be tough in all these books. I mean, if you think about middle grade books, you can see how those are themes. Those are very gendered themes of these books. Yeah. And so in Wimpy Kid, muscles and body image is like a huge theme. Wimpy Kid, right? It's hard in the title. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So he gets bullied for being associated with girls. But the main character adamantly denies any possible femininity, such as in the themes of the books that they're talking about. He doesn't want to buy girls toys toys and he doesn't want to sign up for girl classes like home economics Mm -hmm. it's not supposed to be a diary right it's the diary of a wimpy kid but in the book he says it's a journal it's not a diary right he's denying femininity so even though he's supposed to be creating a different type of masculinity for his readers it's still very much enforcing those gendered stereotypes. It is, yeah. So to conclude, um, this net effect results in books that perpetuate the idea that middle school boys and girls are very different beings who live in dangerous worlds where they are either victims, bullies, mean girls, or nice. Furthermore, if you are a victim, you are small and weak. Mm -hmm. If you are a bully, you are tough and big, or at least tougher and bigger than those you pick on. Yeah. If you are a nice girl, you are miserable and not popular. And if you are a mean girl, you are popular, pretty, and not nice. <laughs> yeah. The books set up a dichotomy of good and bad with little room for empathy for others. Right. And to sort of talk about, I w- I'm going to end my segment on the art education implications of all these things. I have two articles that I'm going to be citing. The first one is Crafts. Boys, Ernest Thomas Seton and the Woodcraft Movement by Chalmers and Dancer. It's from the University of British Columbia in 2008. Mm -hmm. And this article is about um, the start of the Boy Scouts by Ernest Thomas Seton in 1910. So the history of the Boy Scouts and the Woodcraft Movement, as this article posits, is because early art education is gendered. Yes. And that crafts are for girls. Right. Which I actually found to be very interesting because the article is strange as it conceives of art education being the realm of girls. And it sort of takes that like it just says that and then sort of rolls with that idea, Mm -hmm. which I guess I don't necessarily disagree with. However, we know that art history is deeply obsessed with male artists Hmm, and the patriarchy. So I'm not sure if it's a concern of mine that art class seems to center girls. (laughs) Like I'm not denying. It, but I don't know if it's necessarily a horrible thing for girls to feel like there's a place for them. Yeah. 
I mean, it kind of goes back to that weird, like what I was talking about, how when I was a kid growing up, I always perceived fine art as being really feminized. Yeah. But it's also like a very masculine, the career of art is very masculinized. So like, there's like weird yeah. like, dichotomies all over. And it is school, like schooling can be a time of centering girls. This next article is actually going to be sort of talking about how boys can be sort of brought into these spaces. But it's almost like we aren't necessarily talking about masculinizing though. Yes. Like boys aren't going to be demasculinized by entering into the realm of the art class, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this article, so, so Seton in 1910 started the Boy Scouts because he wanted the woodcraft movement to be very masculinizing, right? Oh my God. He sort of talks about how boys want to have action. They want to have adventure. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. They don't want to be drawing pictures. Right, right? sure. They want to be whittling wood that they found in the woods in the forest. Um, and also, this art, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to say anything about what the, the authors are assuming, but this is 2008 that they wrote this. The Woodcraft movement was 100% stolen and colonized from Native Americans. Yeah. Like, bo the b idea of the Boy Scouts is 100% colonization. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and personally, so I'm going to start moving into this article called Malcolm's Story. It's from March 2004. Yeah. And it's about how art can unlock some of the mysteries of masculinity for adolescent boys. Okay. Right? And personally, I actually do spend a lot of time centering boys in my classroom for reasons that the next article actually does a great job of summarizing, right? Okay, yeah. So in this article titled Malcolm's Story by Wesley Imms from 2004, it's a story of a boy who almost got expelled in sixth grade for breaking into the school and causing thousands of dollars of vandalism. He actually, so Malcolm actually finds a voice in the art classroom and uses nihilistic art history movements such as dot to create subversive artworks that he displays in the school all throughout sixth grade up to high school. So Malcolm in the end actually fully engages in his own education rather than being expelled, leading him down a negative path. Interesting. And I think it's really positive because this article is actually talking about the energies right, right. of adolescent boys, right? We talked about this in our episode where we were recognizing social emotional learning and autism in episode 14 mm -hmm. and the ways in which oftentimes we are, do focus on young boys and young men in this scenario, which isn't necessarily fair. But there's a lot of energies and a lot of classrooms expect students to sit for long periods of time, right? And usually by middle school, by high school, we expect students to have so much more of this self-control. Yeah. Which can lead down a path if we are asking students who have a lot more energies to bottle that up. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So to quote this article, our ignorance lies in not understanding how schools and specific subject curricula, such as art, can channel the largely non-understood energy that drives boys to be active, like Malcolm, in building worthwhile identities. It is a significant gap in our knowledge because this energetic activity, mm -hmm. while it may be the cause of boys' many problems, is also, as Malcolm's story suggests, the catalyst for something some of the most significant successes. 
Another quote. What I've learned from watching Malcolm is that most meaningful methods of change for masculinity come from within its own structure. Our lack of knowledge for how this happens constitutes the greatest mystery of masculinity at the moment, and art educators have a role to play in unlocking the door to a better understanding of how boys build their own personal masculinities. Mm. And I do love this because I have experienced in my own classroom a lot of energy, a lot of negativity towards art. Yes. And actually getting students to see that art is an outlet for those energies yeah, yeah, yeah. can be so positive. And that's how I'm going to be ending my segment. Thank you so much. I love ending on that note of like where to go, you know what I mean? Like how to use it in a positive way, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that we don't necessarily want these masculinities. They don't have to be negative. They really don't. Like that's all, like trying to get away from like ascribing positivity and negativity to them in the first place, I think is helpful. Yeah. And I think so much of the early conversations, it's not get rid of masculine yeah. activities or gendered, like creating gendered moments. It's just the recommendation is to make more room. Yeah. For non-binary experiences, right? Yeah, to yeah. make more room for different definitions of masculine yes thank you thank you um so let's wrap up yeah now it's time for letters to the editor our segment where we talk about either mail that we've gotten from you guys or new research into previous subjects that we've talked about mm -hmm. do you have anything for letters to the editor this time e i do i wanted to bring up a book uh, by it's uh, Black Women in Sequence Reinking Comics, Graphic Novels, and Anime by uh, Deborah Elizabeth Whaley um, that was published mm. in 2015. I wanted to bring it up specifically because uh, Whaley writes about Jackie Orms in one of the chapters. Cool. Yeah. So I haven't had a chance to read it for myself. It was in a like Hillary shoot discusses it in one of the articles we read by her for my uh, seminar. Um, so I wanted to mm -hmm. give it a shout out because it seemed really good. Yeah. And I think for a Jackie Orms episode, we were really just using that one source. Yes. Right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So Jackie Orms episode is episode 15. If you want to go back. Thank you for sharing that new source. E. Yeah. Do you have anything? I actually just got Safe is Not Enough. Oh. Better Schools for LGBTQ Students um, by Michael Sadowski who wrote an article that I referenced for episode 17. I haven't um, super dived into this book. I sort of skimmed it to see if it talks about masculinities, um, which I didn't quite see. Okay. But what I really like about it is that it seems to do a lot of observational work, not just like aspirational theoretical work. It has so much to do like in this school, in this state, the this school is doing this thing. I, I like love like very concrete observations. Cool. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, I'm excited to have it. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to Drawing a Dialogue. I want to thank Downtown Boys for their song Wave of History off of their album Full Communism. You can buy it off their band camp. Um, you can go to drawingadialogue.com to view all the citation notes for this podcast. You can also, while you're there, check out Comic Art Ed, which is Kathy's very good education website that hosts us. Thank you. And you can email us at drawingadialogue at gmail.com if you have things you want to ask or sources or just want to contribute um, or comment. Um, we always like hearing from you guys. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and you can also follow us on Twitter at drawadialogue. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at E-H-E-T-J-A, E-H-E-T-J-A. And you can follow me at Kathy G. John. Yeah. 
Um, so what are you reading, E? So on Friday, I'm going to see uh, the sequel to A Doll's House, A Doll's House 2, that, oh <laughs> that was written in 2017. I forget by whom, but it ran, I believe, off Broadway for a while, and now it's touring. So in preparation for that, I reread A Doll's House because it's been a while. Um, and it was interesting because the copy of it I have is from the 50s and someone clearly used it while they were staging a production because there was like little notes all over it which was very nice oh that's so fun yeah what are you reading Kathy I just finished Feathers by Jacqueline Woodson I've been reading a lot more middle grade fiction now that I have a middle grade book coming out yes um so I've talked about Jacqueline Woodson before she is the national young people people's literature person for the Library of Congress, I want to say. Yeah. And uh, so Feathers is about a young girl um, whose brother is deaf. And so she talks about sign language a lot and ability a lot. And also it's like right after sort of the desegregation of schools. So she talks about um, like a white student comes to a majority black school and it's just like a fantastic read i really would recommend it even though it's for middle grade cool yeah um, thank I you so much great for everyone. yeah cool 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 um, i'll check it out so thank you so much for listening to drawing a dialogue farewell to our intrepid volunteers Bye. Bye.